Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to Psalm 30, the 30th Psalm, Psalm 30. <clears throat> Here in just a minute, we'll go ahead and read the Psalm. Uh, there's a... There's, a variety of different kinds of psalms. We've kind of talked about that somewhat in the past, but uh, there are psalms, obviously, that are song psalms, and all of them are songs, but psalms of praise and worship to God, of course, they're psalms of thanksgiving. Um, they're psalms of, somebody classifies these as psalms of lament, but psalms that, for various reasons, they're just kind of expressing sorrow, grief, and, and many times they follow, you know, like it's a confession of sin and, and things of that nature, and then there's actually confession psalms as well, like Psalm 51. There's psalms that focus on Zion as far as uh, the city of Zion or the stronghold of Zion, which is part of Jerusalem, and uh, a lot that emphasizes the future, predicts the future of Zion as well, which will be, uh, of course, uh, very important in Christ's millennial kingdom and so on. There's messianic psalms, a lot of, there's a lot of prophecy in the psalms, and uh, primarily that prophecy focuses on the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And uh, there's psalms that uh, are called imprecatory psalms, but uh, basically, they're prayers for God to destroy the, the psalmist's enemies or judge the wicked and so on. Um, it's kind of interesting because we're kind of not really encouraged, and I'm not trying necessarily to encourage you too, but it's just an interesting thought that most of the time today in what we think, you know, we, it would be wrong to, uh, to pray that way, <laughs> you know, God, destroy them and so on, but uh, anyway, there are some psalms that are along those lines, and then, of course, there's psalms that are just, um, uh, psalm, they're called wisdom psalms and just meant for giving teaching uh, and so on. There's historical psalms. There's a lot of different types of psalms. This psalm here this morning is, for me, anyway, it's a little bit difficult to put into any one category. Uh, it's, it's an interesting psalm. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you'll, you'll see, hopefully, as we kind of go through this. And this morning, we're not necessarily going to uh, focus on a strict exposition of this psalm as much as kind of survey it, and I want to reflect on uh, some things that I think pertain to the background of this psalm and uh, talk about some principles, uh, really, in the psalmist's life and then in our life uh, as well with that. So let's go ahead and uh, start this morning. Um, everybody will get to read a verse, but uh, not everybody's going to get to read twice. So we'll, let, we'll, we'll ask Pastor Brinker to start first and then just go to John. I'll stay out of it. That way more can read here. But Psalm 30, let's go ahead and read that, that psalm if you would. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and has not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. 
Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. For his anger endureth but for a moment, and in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And in my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mouth to stand strong. Of this hide thy face, and I was troubled. I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be thou my helper. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. To the end, <clears throat> to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. The Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, this morning, just uh, please help us as we consider this psalm and, again, the, the things that appertain to it here. And uh, just help us to uh, understand and then, of course, act on uh, truths that we probably all know, uh, but sometimes aren't the easiest to apply in our lives. But help us to act on these uh, truths, Bible truths, principles, and apply them to our lives, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for His sake we pray, amen. As we read through that, or as you read through that, perhaps maybe you, you noticed some things. There's a variety in this psalm. Uh, I mean, some right off you might think, okay, this is a psalm strictly of praise because of the way it starts. But there's other elements in this psalm as well. There's, conf there's a hint of confession in this psalm. I mean, the first several verses, you, would, you might say praise is kind of the strongest theme here. Look down in verse 6, though, and in my prosperity I said I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. I cried unto thee, and I cried unto thee, O Lord, and unto, unto the Lord I made supplication. You see, the idea that the psalmist is kind of reflecting on, you know, God had delivered me, first several verses there, he's praising God because God had... Uh, he even uses the word healed in verse 2. Uh, but, I mean, God had done great things for him. He's kind of, you know, up there. You ever been there? All right. But, the, <laughs> well, that's the key, I think, in this psalm. And I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here before I say that. But uh, you, you see then, it's, the, it's almost like the idea... Uh, in verse 6, and in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. It's like he kind of got confident, self-confident, maybe you would say. And then you'll see that he ends up having to uh, kind of, uh, the word confess isn't used here, but he says, thou didst hide thy face. It's as if, all right, after this, this time, and then he gets to this kind of plateau, and, you know, the mountain, and the plateau, and then he's like, where are you, Lord? And then he makes supplication, so it's like he, he needs to get God to come close again, that kind of an idea. But the point is, okay, and this is where I, I call this psalm the ups and downs of the life of faith, or the Christian life, if you will. I mean, it, it's just, and, and the psalm's attributed to David, all right, and there's a specific situation that it's attributed to, and I'll talk more about that in just a bit here. But 
I think this psalm is very indicative of the typical, and I don't mean that in a bad way, the typical Christian life. There's nobody that, well, put it this way, if you look at the Bible examples that we have, people that we would consider heroes of the faith, great, you know, men and and women of God in the Bible, I mean, what was their lives like? I mean, did they have these great victorious moments? Sure. But they also had times of extreme, many times, testing, trials. There were times where they were questioning. There were times when, you know, like the psalmist, it's kind of like, where are you, God? But that's the way life is. And I don't think there's anybody that has had any, you know, anybody with any experience with the Lord, so to speak, that hasn't gone through all of this. And again, maybe because it's in the Psalms and that, but to me, David's life is very much an illustration of that. And I wanted to, this morning, based on this Psalm, okay, just some principles here and that, just highlight some things about David's life that really bring this out and remind me and hopefully remind us of, I mean, this is the way life is on this earth at best. I mean, we, ought, we need to be aware of and very thankful for the, you know, the, the mountaintop experiences, but at the same time, nobody lives there all the time. I mean, you know, Moses, you think about Moses, he was on Mount Sinai spending time with God personally 40 days, twice. But yet, the majority of Moses' life was certainly not that way. I mean, 120 years is what Moses lived, right? first 40 years, he grew up in Pharaoh's house and was basically trained in all the best things of this world. Then he turns his back on that, according to Hebrews, because he believed God. There was something put in him, perhaps by the you know by his mother and in the time that when he was really small, and uh, she nursed him. Uh, perhaps during that time, I I don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't I don't think make it extremely clear. But the bottom line is there was something put into Moses that there came a point in his life where he knew something was true, and he had to make a decision. And he made the right decision, thankfully. But you know what? When he first, met, you know, first uh, tried, if you want to say, to act on God's will, it seems that he did it out of God's timing, and he ends up having to flee. Spends 40 more years in the desert. 40 years. You know what? That's a long time, isn't it? Some of you aren't even 40 years old. But 40 years in the debt, 40 years goes by pretty fast when you're on the other side of it, looking back. But during it and ahead of it, it seems like forever. But when you, when you look back, time does go fast. It really does. But 40 years in the desert. And then he spent 40 years with what I would call all the headaches of the Israelites I mean, Moses' life, if you think about it, is not necessarily a life that anybody would say, yeah, I would just love to do that. 
But at the same time, he's a great example of a man that God greatly used. But I don't think you can find any example of any Bible character that the Bible tells us anything about, okay? I mean, maybe not somebody just listed in a genealogy we know nothing about. But, I mean, that the Bible, you know, talks about his or her life. But you'll find nobody that did not have not just trying times, but much of their life was spent in that. I mean, Joseph, I mean, again, you could, any, anybody you can think of, really, in the Bible, that's the case. And David has become a, uh, a very dear, I'll say, character to me in the Bible just because of, uh, I, for whatever reason, I've been drawn a lot to the Psalms, which he probably is the majority uh, human writer of these, of these Psalms, but, but David's life. And there were highs and lows in David's life, but the thing is, the overall trajectory of David's life was one of spiritual growth. And that hopefully can be the case, well, it can be, hopefully it will be the case in our lives. I mean, there's, there's high times, there's low times, and there's a lot of just kind of times where it's, you wouldn't say it's high or low, it's just there. But through all of that, we obviously there's things we need to allow God to do in our lives. Now, this psalm, as I said, it has, it has elements of praise, has elements of confession, has elements of just making supplication to God. It has elements of testimony. There are the last couple of verses. That was turned for me, my mourning, into dancing. That was put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. That's a, that's a good testimony right there. I mean, he's looking back. I, I believe this was written later in David's life. There's uh, some different possibilities here. I personally, I'll just put this out here, I, and, and this is, this is uh, I'm not the only one, obviously, but I believe this is in connection with the house of the Lord that Solomon built that David prepared for. As he's preparing for it, he's reflecting back, and he's thinking back on his life as how God has worked and so on, and he's, uh, he's again, just kind of reflecting back. And there's some various reasons why I say that, uh, but... Think about David's life for a second. There's no way we have time to turn to all the references for these scenarios. But just to kind of remind us, I want you to think back. I, I had a, a decent list here of things from David's life, and I came across this other one. And so I just copied it. It has more items than what I had. But, uh, I mean, what do we know about David in the Scriptures? All right, we're first introduced to David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And, uh, uh, you know, 1 Samuel obviously begins with Samuel, the prophet. Samuel was also in the priestly line, uh, but begins with Samuel. And then, of course, the next key figure would be Saul, who was the first king of Israel, actually. And Saul had an opportunity, but he blew it, and he didn't humble himself and allow God to work in his life. He wanted to do things his way. And so God told Samuel to go and anoint somebody else to be king. And 
the Lord described to Samuel that man who probably wasn't even really a man in most uh, estimations at that time, but he said he's a man after my heart, after mine own heart. And that's an interesting thing. But how do we, where we first, in, in First uh, Samuel chapter 16, we uh, are introduced to David, all right? What do we know about him there? I mean, think about that for just a second. Again, we, there's not time to turn to all these scriptures, so I'll just reference it, First Samuel 16, all right? We see that David was the youngest son of Jesse. And, and I got to thinking about this on the way here. I didn't put this in here, but, you know, just as another... Um, attestation of God's grace and how he works. Does anybody realize who uh, David's, I believe it would be his great-grandmother was? Ruth, who, what do we know about Ruth? She was a, a Moabitess. I mean, you think about some of these things, and it's just, I mean how God's grace works, it's just an amazing thing, that God can overcome these obstacles, right? And we'll talk more about that here in just a, a few moments. But you see David being introduced to us here. He was young. We don't know his age exactly, but he was young, and he was called a, he's called a youth, all right? Now, again, that, that's not the easiest to pinpoint his age because what we might consider youth and what was considered youth at that time might not be exactly the same, okay? But, but he was young. And uh, also, think about him at that time. What was he, what was his main, what was he mostly uh, associated with at that point? He was the shepherd of his father's flock. That's an interesting thing. Now, some people automatically think, well, because he was the youngest, that was just relegated to him. I personally think that was quite a responsibility. And he was the youngest, but yet he was the one that was the, the shepherd of the flock. And uh, later, later on in his life, that, that connection of being the shepherd is still associated with him. He was the shepherd of Israel uh, as their king. But... He was anointed to be king of Israel at a young age. Uh, then later in 1 Samuel 16, we, we, we see that he also was skillful, and the word cunning is used to describe how he played on the harp. Now, uh, and, and then we're introduced where he, or he's, he's seen as being brought into Saul, the king's court, for the purpose of playing the harp to soothe Saul. Saul was having troubles, <laughs> and uh, he needed some help, and David is the one that comes there, probably through all of that, and then perhaps at the, uh, uh, the, the connection with the situation with Goliath and all that, um, uh, David and Jonathan become friends. Jonathan was Saul's son and most likely was the one who normally would have inherited the throne. It's an interesting thing that Jonathan was a godly enough man that he realized it wasn't God's will, and he was accepting of that. And, and he and David were very, very good and close friends, 
And, uh, and it, again, an interesting uh, scenario with all that. But, of course, in, Sam, in 1 Samuel 17 is the, uh, the situation with Goliath. I mean, when you just start thinking about that, that that's an amazing, a miraculous situation that you have, uh, you know, these armies, all right, Israel and the Philistines, they're, they're, you know, arrayed in battle, they're facing off, and this giant comes out. Now, when we think of giant, what do we think of? You know, depends on various things, maybe what cartoons you watched as a kid or something like that, but, you know, we think of this, you know. I mean, giant, I mean, Goliath was a man. He was a regular man, but yet just a very, very big man. By the estimations that we, we see in the Scripture and that, he was probably about 10 feet tall. I mean, that's pretty tall and very big and heavy, you know, strong. Uh, the, I don't remember the, the exact numbers off the top of my head, but, I mean, his spear was rather heavy, and just for him to be able to take that and throw it, I mean, he would have had to be a big, strong guy. But he was a man. I mean, he's not some, you know, cartoon monster is what I'm getting at. He was just a big man. But obviously was able to intimidate an entire army. And by the way, think of this. How was King Saul of Israel described for us in the Scripture? Head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, that's fairly big himself. Um. I've never had that problem, so uh, <laughs> unless I was comparing myself to Joel or something maybe, but, you know, now, probably for long, he'll be head and shoulders above me, but anyway, I mean, Saul was a big man, but yet Goliath intimidated him. Now, part of Saul's problem is he knew he wasn't right with God. He knew that God, God's anointed presence had left him. And he was afraid. But think of, you know, I mean, then David comes and all the scenario, situation with that, David comes and challenges and kills Goliath. And so this young man, right? And then, of course, after that, I got, I got to hurry on here, but you see that, that David was invited then to Saul's court as a guest really at that point. And he and Jonathan's relationship, again, was, was a, a tremendous friendship uh, that I'm sure grew uh, over these years. And all of this is happening over a period of, of time, all right? It doesn't happen just, you know, sometimes we, we might read uh, these accounts in the Bible and think all this was, you know, just like one day right after the other. I mean, this is happening over a period of time here. And then he becomes son-in-law to Saul, all right? And obviously, that's, that's a, an interesting scenario in all of this. Saul then tried to use that as a means to get rid of David, all right? Uh, but David then basically became the leader of the armies of Israel under Saul as king, but David's the one that led them out and brought them back and so on. And always to victory. In fact, as far as I can see, there's never a battle that David as the leader lost. Never. David then ends up, because of Saul's jealousy and, and persecution of David, Saul, you know, again, he, he 
started out good and had some problems. But uh, he, David then has to run for his life. And I don't know exactly how long, but as best as I can estimate, this is probably, everybody's aware of this, right? That David was on the run from Saul. I mean, and again, this wasn't something that happened just in a quick matter of time. This is at least a 13-year period. This is a long, I mean, think about that. For 13 years, every day, you're running for your life because somebody who is in authority is trying to kill you. I mean... That's, that's quite a scenario if you think about it. And I'm sure that through all of that, the Lord taught David a lot of things. And a lot of the Psalms that we have seem to be a lot of reflection back on this period of David's life when he was literally running for his life, having to hide out, but at the same time he's running for his life, more and more people are gathering to him and his own kind of like personal army is being built up to where at, at uh, kind of at the end of that period of time, he has 600 men. And of course, they have families and so on. But not only is, is that a comforting thing because now David has this help, but at the same time, he's responsible for them. And this is, turn, because this is an amazing passage to me, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30 real quick. Again, we don't have time to look at every one of these things, but 1 Samuel chapter 30, <clears throat> this is, all right, David's been running for his life. He's, he's, this is the second time. He fled two times. Now, keep in mind, all of this, the background, David, Goliath, that, you know, the Goliath, the Philistines, David with Israel, and David twice during this period of time went to the Philistines for protection. To get away from Saul. I mean, this is amazing, isn't it? When you start thinking about all this. And the second time, this where this story here is in the second time, this is right before, right at the time uh, as Saul is actually killed in battle and so on, then David will become king eventually. Uh, but the second time David had gone and Achish who was uh, the king of Gath, he uh, gives David a city. Ziklag is the name of that city. If you were to look on a map, it's at the way south in the, uh, the coast. The Philistines dwelt on the, on the Mediterranean coast there, um, so on the, the west of is Judah and Israel and so on. And way down in the south part there, there's a uh, town, Ziklag. And Achish, it was part of the Philistine territory, Achish gave it that city to David. So that was where David and his men, their families, that's where they lived. All right? And David was doing different things uh, during this period of time and uh, going out and wiping out other, other little cities and towns and people and so on and, um, try, and kind of keeping it quiet from the Philistines at the same time as well because they thought he was doing this against Israel uh, and, and so on, which made David more trustworthy in their sight. Uh, there's, there's some various, I think, mixture of some motives and things in all of this. But again, if you put yourself in David's shoes, you know, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, Saul, you can't go home. Saul wants to kill you. And he will. He could. And so uh, 
he's outrunning, all right? And this comes to this point. It, the Philistines had attacked Israel. Saul and his sons are killed in this battle. But there's like a sub thing that happens, sub battle, if you want to say, that happens during this. And the Amalekites, as David had left Ziklag to go with the Philistines against Israel in battle. Now, that didn't happen because the other lords of the Philistines didn't trust David, and so they, they argued with Achish, and Achish told him to go home. And uh, here it says, And it came to pass, 1 Samuel 30, when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire. Now, keep in mind, that was David's town now. It's where David lived, and, and he and his men and all their families and so on, and had taken the women captives and there were there, that were therein, they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. And David and the people that were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. I mean, think of that. You ever been there? where you are so emotionally drained, it's gone. I mean, you're just completely wiped out. And then notice, David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed. And that's, that's one of those things that you read that, and, and if you really think about it, that's probably like an understatement. I mean... How else are you going to say it? But he was greatly distressed. For the people spake of stoning him. Now, this is his own men. They're all distressed. And they don't know what else to do, right? They're, they're so distraught that they actually now turn on David. It's your fault. I mean, there's a lot of other lessons in this. But David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because of the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But notice how that verse ends. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. That's an amazing statement. An amazing statement. Now, it doesn't give us any other details. What he did, you know, what, what he was doing to, to do that, and I think some of the Psalms reflect more on what was involved in that. Uh, but David encouraged himself in the Lord as God. He gets himself together, so to speak, right, with the Lord's help because he seeks the Lord, obviously, here in all this. And now he gets direction. And again, I, we don't have time to read the whole passage, but he gets direction from the Lord here. And he goes and he gets, they get, he and his men, they get back everything that was taken. Nobody was killed. None of, their, none of their people were killed. They didn't lose. They recovered everything, the Bible says. I mean, and then, then this, is the, the, as this is happening down here, and, you know, the battle between the Philistines and Israelites are up here. Saul and his sons are killed by the Philistines. And so the obstacle, if you want to say, remember, David had been anointed king. David knew that God, you know, it was God's plan and God's will for him to be king. He would not impose that himself and get Saul out of the way. He determined to let God take care of it, and he basically told his men that in God's timing, it'll happen. That's, that's a difficult place to be. I mean, uh, this is a period of waiting, 
but not just sitting around. I mean, he's running for his life. All this, all right? I mean, David sees great deliverance from God. Then, you know, then, then just everything falls apart. His own men turn on. I mean, just, it, it just this, what I'm getting at is David's life, if you think about it, is just like this. It's up and down and up and down and up and down, kind of like that song we sang there. Uh, you know, it's enough to make your knees hurt. <laughs> up and down, that's David's life. And he finally, finally, after, again, years of waiting on God, waiting on God's timing, waiting on God's plan to come to fruition, years, like I said, as best estimates that I know of, at least 13 years, he's running and waiting. He finally becomes king. Now, even at that, think about this. He only becomes king of the tribe of Judah for seven years. It took that long for the rest of Israel to come and submit themselves to him. And, and so on. Saul had a son that wasn't killed in battle, that, that Saul's general, Abner, you know, tried to make king. And anyway, so it still didn't happen overnight. Still a long time. I mean, so you think, finally, after 20 years, David becomes king of Israel? 20 years, folks, that's a long time. That's a long time to wait, a long time to trust, to be patient. <laughs> uh, again, when you think about these things like that, it's, it's sometimes... It makes a big difference than how we sometimes just read it and think all oh, this boom, 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 you know, happened in a couple days. I mean, this is a long time. You think about, you talk about waiting. What about Abraham? For, put a pause on David for a second. God promised Abraham a special son, right? Abraham waited 25 years after God promised him that, right? He was 75 when he left Ur the Chaldees. God made him that promise initially. He was 100 when Isaac was born. 25 years he waited on that promise. That's a long time. And he wasn't perfect in waiting at that time, wasn't he? He had some ups and downs and had, you know, a lapse of faith. You know, Sarah encouraged him to uh, take uh, Hagar, and, and anyway, then Ishmael's born. And I mean, and of course, there's all kinds of lasting ramifications of that, but God did keep his word. I mean, again, you, you can take any Bible character and see the same principles. But, so you have David. He finally, finally becomes king over all Israel. And during the number of years there, he is in battles. I mean, he was, he was a warrior. He really was. Um, when you think about David, I mean, what, you know, what are the big traits that come to mind? Well, he was, he was a warrior. He was also a psalmist. In fact, in 2 Samuel 23, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. I mean, that just doesn't seem to go with warrior, does it? But the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's, he was a king. I mean, just a lot of things about David. But uh, during his reign, Israel's territory extended to its greatest lengths ever. Solomon inherited that and maybe 
during Solomon's reign. Solomon is never recorded that he ever fought any battles. But so, during Solomon's reign, the territory of Israel was the greatest of ever. Now, Israel didn't inhabit all of that territory, but he was, all of that territory was subservient to him as king, paid tribute to him and brought wealth into Israel and, and all of that kind of stuff. But it was because of David. It was because of David's battles and, and wars that all of that happened. And it's interesting that once David died, Israel's territory then gradually just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And shrinking. And, but it was the greatest under David. Of course, after some time of being king, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things involved in the, what, the, what led up to that and, and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, he attempted to cover up his sin by causing the death of her husband uh, and so on. He lived miserable for about a year, it seems, and then got right with God. And Psalm 51 is, I think, the greatest example in the Bible of confession of sin that, uh, that we have. And I think Psalm 32 goes along with that and so on, but uh, it seems that throughout David's life, it seems that he probably struggled as a father and a husband, you know, as a family man, and keep in mind he had numerous wives, I mean, that in itself is going to cause a lot of problems, but I mean, and that's not a knock on you ladies, okay, I'm just stating a fact there, uh, trying to intermingle all of that, you know, I mean, a lot of problems, It and I believe, though, that later in his life, and I think that he tried to rectify that with Bathsheba and Solomon, and I believe that you can see he poured a lot of time and effort into training Solomon that he did not do with his other sons, and, you know, commend him for, for at least learning that lesson and, and trying to make that right uh, in his life. But then you have Absalom's revolt against David. What a, what a terrible story that is there. And Absalom's revolt and then, uh, you know, David's subsequent be reinstatement as king. And then that leads us to, go to um, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Second Samuel chapter 24, and I'll just throw this out here. I may be right or wrong. This is just my opinion, okay? I don't think that you can take this, point to a verse and be dogmatic that this is it, but I believe that this is more the scenario of when David wrote this psalm. And uh, there came a time, all right, here, um, notice Second notice, uh, Samuel 24, I think that's where I told you to go. Verse 1, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Uh, and then most, you're familiar with the story, right? David then uh, gets it in his, it, this idea, he wants to number the people. And the whole concept of that is God had kind of told them not to do that because God said, you don't need, you know, you don't need to rely on your numbers, because I will protect you, and I will take care of you, and I will make sure that you win battles and so on. I mean, you think about, I, I said, you know, David was a great warrior, and I think he was. But at the same time, God miraculously intervened in those battles as well, numerous, numerous times. 
And, um, but David numbered the people, which was a sin. And David realizes it and you know, confesses it, makes it right. But in the, in the whole thing, and again, we don't have time to read this, but if, if, from chapter 24, or yeah, chapter 24 through chapter, I think it's, oh, I'm thinking of 1 Chronicles. But 1 Chronicles spends a lot more time on this. It's, it's like seven chapters. Um, but you see, the whole point of this is through all of this, God works in such a way that David buys what would become the Temple Mount, the Temple property where, where Solomon would actually build the temple. And you see in, in First Chronicles, the whole book of First Chronicles is basically about David. And you have, like I said, about seven, maybe it's nine chapters there at the end of First Chronicles that just focus on David's, uh, this scenario here where David had sinned, but yet God, you know, God used that to allow David to not just make that right, you know, offer a sacrifice and so on, but he ends up buying, purchasing the property that the temple would be built on. And from there on out till David died, the focus, and again, if you look at First Chronicles, uh, I think it's chapter 21 there, and through the end, through I think chapter 29, you have nine chapters devoted to David's preparation for the temple. David invested much in preparing to build that temple. I mean, that's, that's in those chapters we see David, not just, not just the physical preparations as far as the money. I mean, he raised untold money for the temple. Again, it's one of those things, Solomon, you know, he's credited with building the temple, but... David's really the one that had everything there for him. He, he's, God gave the plans of the temple to David. I mean, and, and Solomon just kind of had to put everything into action, the plan that David had probably put, put on paper. And, uh, but David preparing for it. David, he, he organized the priests. He organized the Levites. He organized courses and, and you know, shifts. For them, because obviously there's a lot of them by this time, and they can't all be in the temple and serve at the same time. So there, he he organized all of that. The singing for the temple, he organized that. He made instruments for God to be worshipped in the temple. I mean, just David's life was focused on that part of his life was focused on preparing for that temple. It's amazing uh, when you see it and think about it, but. Uh, and of course, during his life, then God uses him to uh, write many of the Psalms. But you you think about this, okay? David, the ups and downs of his life, again, serve as examples to us. Let me. I got four lessons here. Let me just go over these real quick, and we got to stop. But one lesson, and and all of these are easy preaching, hard living. Okay, I mean. A lot of things are that way, aren't they? We can know them, but putting them to practice is often a, a whole lot harder than what we think. But God deserves our worship no matter what our circumstances may be. I think one of the great characteristics you can see of David's life is he had a heart for God. He had a, a focus in his life that he wanted God to be magnified. 
in Psalm 30, I'm not there right now, but the first verse, it's, he, he says, I, he will extol God. He uses that term several times in the Psalms. But he wants God to be raised up. He wants God to be exalted, to be magnified. And no matter what, think about that. David, David had a lot of good things in his life, but he had a lot of bad things happen to him. And many of us, probably me, if I was in those circumstances, I probably wouldn't have made it through maybe. I don't know. I mean, with God's help, I could, okay. But, you know, maybe I would have thrown in the towel. But David waited 20 years, if you count the time that he was just partially king, for that promise that God made to him to be fully realized. That, that's, that's a tremendous thing if you think about it. Secondly, I mean, God has a, a loving plan for our lives, and there's fulfillment for that in us. I mean, obviously, His will, His design always involves His glory, but it also involves our good. Sometimes it's hard to see that when we're being tested and tried. But God is concerned about you. God loves you. And, you know, some people, there's, there's a phrase that a certain group uses, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that is true. That is true. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of that sometimes because things don't always look loving. Things don't always look, you know, sunny <laughs> like today, you know. Uh, I mean, things can be cloudy. And we can lose sight of things. So we have to be reminded of the truth, right, so that we can trust God. Um, but even when we mess up, and this is one of the, I think, the things that comes out in David's life that is important to remind ourselves of, and that is even when we mess up, you know what, God can take that and use that for good. What about, just, just one example, what about that numbering of the people? That was wrong for David to do. It was a sin, and it cost some people, their lives, thousands of people. But God brought about good from it. And all that preparation of the temple, the temple mount, all that was able to be realized because of that particular wrong decision that David made, but God was able to or take that, orchestrate it, and live out, if you want to say Romans 8, 28, that God... <laughs> ah. Senior moment. Uh, we know that all things work together for good. All right? doesn't mean all things are good. It doesn't say that either. But God is able to make things work out for good in our lives. There's a difference in those two. All right? But sometimes the Lord must allow and use difficulties in our lives to steer us, to direct us, and prepare us for His good in our lives. That's not easy. It's not easy. But again, that's why it's important that we know the truths so that when we focus on the truths, we can trust God. And we can apply these. And God can be trusted. Remind ourselves that God... I mean, look how He works in... in you know, that's one of the big things of the Old Testament. These... Things are for our admonition, for our learning, for and samples to us, so that we can know these things are real in our lives as well. 
no matter how out of control situations of this world are, situations in our lives maybe, uh, but God is still in control and can be trusted. And one last thing here, even if God, can't hardly read my writing here, uh, seems to be far away from us, anybody ever heard that song? I, I don't know any other words to it right off the top of my head than this, but he's only a prayer away. I mean, think about this, even when we, all right, in, in Psalm 30, David expresses this, and he's like, God is, he's, he's far off. I'm, I, you know, where are you? Well, even in situations in our lives like that, he's there. He just wants us to call out on him and draw close to him. He hasn't left us. We're the ones that leave him, so to speak. But he's there. We just, we need to turn to him and call out to Him and trust Him. So, use, think about David's life and the big picture of his life. Not just, you know, hey, he killed Goliath. But, I mean, all the things that went into, you know, God preparing and using David. And in spite of David, many times, God did great things. And God can be trusted. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. Thank you for your, your great goodness. Please help us to trust you, rely on you as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.